Welcome to Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about everything virtual reality. And today we'll talk a lot, uh, uh, about a little bit more than just virtual reality, perhaps. I, well, maybe every podcast we talk about a little bit more than virtual reality. In any re- regard, today I am joined by the wonderful Kent Bai. Uh, Kent is a filmmaker, a virtual reality designer um, for the Global Game Jam, I believe, and also a practitioner in esoteric and uh, beautiful spiritual things. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, uh, Kent. Great. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. So you are the designer for Shadow Projection, I believe. Yeah. So uh, during the Global Game Jam, I took my Oculus Rift to the Portland uh, Game Jam site here in Oregon. And I didn't really know anybody in the game development community. I uh, had heard of the Oculus Rift uh, Kickstarter and then I didn't really pay attention to it. You know, I had been, I played video games when I was in high school, like, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and I kind of dropped it for a long time uh, up until like getting the Rift, um, starting to get a little bit more into like game design and gaming. Uh, but what really sort of put me over the edge of, of actually buying a Rift was uh, seeing stuff like 3JS, which is. Uh, 3D uh, JavaScript within the browser. And I saw that there was like little Oculus cameras that were supported on their website. And then I saw people doing some stuff with like the Oculus Rift in the web browser. And that kind of caught my attention because I had been developing some HTML5 applications in Canvas. uh, And it was really slow and I wanted to kind of get into, you know, perhaps doing a native app. Uh, and then, so I had already in my mind, like I had this sort of these, these side projects that I've been working on, uh, and I wanted to kind of, um, upgrade, I guess you could say. Uh, but you know, I just woke up one morning on, on New Year's day and I was like, oh, you know what I need to do is I need to just get this Oculus Rift. And instead of doing an HTML5 app that I'm trying to look on my phone, I should just do a fully immersive 3D virtual reality version of it and then backport it to <laughs> to the, the phone version and the website. So that was kind of what started me on the journey with the Oculus Rift. Um, and so I hadn't known anybody in the game development community here in Portland. And I just show up and I say I have a Rift and I want to do a, vir- a game of virtual reality. And there just happened to get paired up with two other people uh who had between them about eight years of, of Unity experience, wow. uh, Yuri Kovechko and, and Jesse Full, uh, Failure. So they, between the two of them, Jesse did a lot of the 3D modeling and Yuri did basically do all the, did all the coding. And I was just sitting there uh, doing a lot of the feedback and ideas. I had read all the best practices from Oculus Rift. And so I was helping just uh, uh, guide the process of, what makes a good virtual reality experience. And uh, within the first, you know, a uh, couple of, uh, I could say four or five hours, we had like a working prototype of our, the basic mechanics of our game, which is that you, you move your head around. And when you move your head around, then you're rotating a 3D object that's hidden, but you can see the 2D projection, the shadow projection on the ground. And the, the basic object of the game is to look at the object in your hand and then 
choose the correct object by rotating your head. And we didn't have any like uh, video game Xbox or keyboard input. It was all just using the Oculus Rift and looking around. So we just uh, did this whole game in 48 hours where we were doing these rapid prototype iterations where all these people were coming up to this and they were like, hey, can I try at the Rift? And at every single point, we we're like, absolutely, here, why don't you try to see, you know, play through our game, see what you think, and then give us some feedback. So we basically did that for the whole 48 hours, um, getting constant feedback and improving it and um, kind of coming up with a complete uh, game that um, out of that whole experience. So that was kind of, you know, my first experience of doing uh actual game design within virtual reality that's amazing uh and and, and so in 48 hours you, you were able to put together a, a prototype a demo of what shadow projection it has become yeah i mean that basically what's out there uh is what we um have you is basically what we did um mm -hmm. in 48 hours uh jesse had actually stayed up the entire night the first night uh doing all the modeling and then um like i said um the the, the global game jam, if, if people are not familiar with it, uh, it's basically you try to create a game in 48 hours and they give you a prompt. And this year's prompt was a, an Anaya Sten quote, which is uh, things are not the way that they are. They're the way that you are. You, you don't see the way things are. You see the way things you are. And so it's this psychological principle of projection where you're kind of projecting your own traumas onto other people. Um, and that was the concept. And then in the Jungian terms, that's called shadow projection. Yeah. And so we took that, that concept and then just made it literal that's, <laughs> instead of like the, that's that well, I had to, I, ha I had to let that settle for a sec. That, that prompt things aren't the way they are. Things are the way you are. You don't see the things the way they are. You see the way that you see things the way you are. Yeah. So it basically gets to the point where our perceptions are not objective in the sense that our cultural, our biases are mm -hmm. filtering everything. Um, there's the, the objectivity has, you can't separate subjectivity and objectivity in a certain sense, yeah. I think is what in essence is how I interpret that. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of an idea that um, you're not seeing things from a neutral perspective. You have your own sort of biases uh, from your own experiences in the world and so you're kind of projecting those out into the world and the shadow the idea of the shadow from Jungian perspective is that uh, there's parts of your psyche that um, are buried or hidden that you haven't fully integrated within yourself and so what happens is you know a good example is the things that uh, make you angry about other people are usually the things that are within yourself that are not integrated and accepted Wow, yes. Homophobia much. Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> whatever whatever that is, you know. Yeah. Whatever those things that, you know, you haven't fully integrated in yourself. Um, you know, if you get mad at somebody cheating, maybe there's a part of yourself that's cheating that you haven't fully integrated and, and accepted and is buried and hidden. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea of the shadow is that we have these blind spots in our lives and that um, they come out by... <laughs> projecting them onto other people and so we get angry at other people when it's really our own stuff that's interesting yeah so that was kind of the, the psychological principles that we're working off of and we just kind of took that idea and made a game out of it that's a very that's that's a really cool principle are you are you thinking about bringing this uh working on shadow projection further in the future or is this going to be a proof of concept of what you can uh provide us with next time 
Well, so um, with the between the the three people that worked on it, we've we haven't really discussed uh, any concrete plans to do anything with it at this point. Um, but I do think it's a solid concept of of um, basically it's a the thing that I was really wanting to do uh, was to have something that was working on something that was uh, building some real skill in, in life. In this case, it was a uh, uh, spatial recognition. So mm-hmm. being able to 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 have those uh, 3D objects and to be able to do these spatial recognition tasks with that. Um, and so the, the, the principles that I, I find really interesting in virtual reality is that you can do things like uh, do memory games or do things like uh, going in there and really there's a there's a concept called L-O-C-I, LOCI, which is the, the Greek for location. And that's a memory technique where uh, you would look at a room and then you would memorize that room. And then in order to memorize a list, then you would start placing those objects and associating the objects with the different things that are in the room. So if you needed to remember a list of 10 things, then you could uh, uh, place those out and kind of create a story or just uh, connect those two things visually. Hmm. And so the things that you could do in, in virtual reality is have a whole memory hotel uh, with these all these different virtual reality rooms that you could go in there and start uh, memorizing or studying. Uh, another thing that I'm really interested in, uh, a concept is called uh, spaced repetition, and that's something uh, that Anki is a uh, one version that's an open source version of something called Super Memo. Mm-hmm. And spaced repetition goes on this concept of flashcards, where uh, when you use flashcards, um, you have like you know cards on one side, you have kind of the the key, the the prompt, and then the other side is the answer. Uh, and, you, you know, it's an old technique for people to kind of memorize languages a lot of times. But the point at which you sometimes if you do the analog version of the cards, uh, some of the cards you'll know better than others, but you'll you'll keep looking at it and you're kind of wasting your time. And so the idea of digital flashcards and space repetition is that the, the point at which you need to look at the card to remember it is at the point that you're just about to forget it. And so it it keeps track of how you tell it how well you remember it, and then it figures out at what point you need to remind yourself of what that that was. And so there's this exponential drop off of at at some point you're going to need to look at that again, um, and to remind yourself of what that was. And so there's formats out there with Super Memo, with uh, Anki, and um, we basically give it a list of of uh, key values where there's a key and then there's the, the value you're trying to remember. Mm-hmm. And you can feed that into something like virtual reality to be able to actually memorize or learn languages or, or be able to, to study in an environment that is super optimized to, to eliminate all distractions and to really allow you to focus and, and to be immersed into the process of learning. Um, so that's, that's the type of things that I'm really interested in. And I've sort of got a whole list of other pet projects that, you know, uh, I have in my mind, um, but, I have yeah. a whole list of questions to ask you so Go far <laughs> because that uh, – man, where do I start? Well, I wanted to ask you like uh, – man, let's take a, a quick step back. What made you get off gaming? You know, you, you, you said you took a break from uh, gaming. What, what was it that sort of just, eh, I'm going to take a break? What, what was it? So I had like a you know NES growing up, Super Mario, and then I went to college, right, an mm-hmm. uh, engineering college, and that it was – you know, I went to college in 1994 at Rosalman Institute of Technology. Uh, I was an electrical engineering degree, um, or st- studying to be an electrical engineer. And Doom 2 had just come out, and people were laying down Ethernet cords down the hallways because they 
they didn't have like networked uh, dorms yet. Mm-hmm. And so people had just laid these hard network cords and I got into playing Doom too. And I quickly became like the best Doom 2 player yeah. on my floor and maybe even in the whole school, which was fun. But it was also like every time they were playing, I helped, I felt like I needed to go play. And, um. and so here I am at college and I'm like spending all my time playing Doom 2. <laughs> and I just made the decision. He was like, you know what? I, I can't be doing this. You know, I want to actually experience what it's like to be at college and not be playing video games all the time. So I just kind of went on cold turkey for, you know, since you know, the late nineties and haven't really gotten into console games or, you know, I'd play a few mobile games here and there, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily characterize myself as a a gamer. So Mm. I'm coming at virtual reality from a perspective of, of creating virtual experiences. You know, I'd say I'm more of a filmmaker, you know, I got electrical engineering degree and then I went to go make some documentary films for a while. Um, And so I see the medium that like, I really do see virtual reality as a brand new medium. You know, it's not like any other medium that we have. Definitely. It's 3D. It's fully immersive. Uh, and so, you know, with each medium, it takes a certain, it has different, the, the tendency to happen whenever there's a, sorry, let me just stop that from ringing. Uh, whenever there's a new uh, communications medium, the tendency is to take the previous medium and just port it over one-to-one and just say, I'm done. You know, yeah. they used to play like operas on the radio and that was like, that was that's what they thought would be the best use of radio. But then they find out, well, actually it's really great for doing talk shows and to have some little bit of interactivity with, with, uh, going to, to film, you know, you can't just do like radio plays on film because there's a whole language that has to emerge. Um, so there's like people like Alex Bueno who do, does the whole art of visual storytelling where there's like seven key components of, of story of visual storytelling, including like space, line, shape, color, tone, movement, and rhythm. All of these are components of crafting a a film experience. And they're doing that with cinematography that is using cuts. Uh, So they're able to create a lot of this. But with VR, you're not able to use a lot of those same visual storytelling mechanisms because it's it's from the perspective of a first-person perspective. It's fully immersive. In my mind, it's much closer to the medium of immersive theater than it is to any other medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if people aren't familiar with immersive me- uh, theater, the probably the most famous uh, immersive theater show that I can think of is uh, Sleep No More, which has been ongoing since like 2011 in New York City. Mm-hmm. And it's a wild experience. Um, basically, there's 100 rooms in New York City and five different floors and you go in there and you put on a mask and there's 21 actors that are running around from room to room. And what they're doing is that they're uh, playing out the play of Macbeth through interpretive dance. And you have the choice to follow any actor that you want. It's like your free will to kind of chase them, chase them around. All the, like I said, all the audience members has masks on and whoever doesn't have a mask on is one of the actors Uh, And so there's each each and every single actor in the play, whether they're a minor or major character, has their storyline that goes throughout the whole sequence. And this storyline is looping. Mm -hmm. So it loops two and a half times. You're thrown into like the middle of this show and it's chaos. It's hard to know like what's going on, but they're actually acting out Macbeth. So 
with if you're familiar with Macbeth, you can kind of follow along and figure out who Macbeth is because if there's 50 or 60 people chasing after one guy, that's probably Macbeth because he's you know a big character and he's going to be having all these big scenes with other big characters. That's like the main show, right? But there's other minor characters that are just as interesting to follow them around as well. Um, and so it, it was just this whole like experience that I think in my mind is going to be more along the lines of what a virtual reality experience is going to be. You're not going to be able to get all of it. It's going to be fragmented. Fragmented. It's going to be nonlinear. It's going to be up to your choice to kind of choose what to go and see and do each time around. Um, and it's going to be the type of experience that, like Sleep No More, you go see and you're only able to get a, a fraction of what happened. And you're gonna, it's going to demand that you talk to other people to kind of piece it together and figure it out. Or for you to go back and experience it again and again and again until you kind of really get the full gist of what's going on. That was exactly what I was going to say. I, thought, I think the, the non-linearity of it provides for great replay value. I mean, if, if, if I were to... for it, you're talking about sleep no more. It could might as well be a video game. The thing that you were describing just now. I mean, it, it feels like it could be an experience that could go easily inside of virtual reality, especially because I, you know, especially in the beginning, I, I think more subtle, more uh, relaxed sort of sort of experiences are, are going to be much more needed. Uh, I think than than you know, explosion, explosion, Michael Bay, explosions everywhere kind of games. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, part of the there's been a number of articles looking at Sleep No More, comparing it to a video game. You, if you just do a Google search for Sleep No More video game, you'll come up with Wired articles and other people talking about it. Um, you know, there's not a lot of interactivity in Sleep No More, mm -hmm. uh, except for the fact I will say that um, you know this is a spoiler for if you are going to see it, but you know there there are. Uh, so close your ears for a few seconds, but there are opportunities for you to have one-on-one -on -one interactions with the actors in Sleep No More. So there is a component where they could sort of take you to the side and uh, go you, go into a secret room and they may give you a quest to go kind of give something to another character and then there's sort of this exchange that happens. So yeah. there's kind of like these, these things that, that happen, but there's no rhyme or reason for how you get selected. It's kind of up to the actor as to whether or not uh, you're kind of wandering around alone, whether or not you're going to actually get chosen to, to be have one of these intimate one-on-one -on -one reactions or interactions. But other than that, the uh, Sleep No More is, is kind of a, a self-contained thing where there's not a lot of interactivity. Like you don't have any capability of, of changing the plot at mm -hmm. all. It's sort of going, you're just there as a voyeur watching it unfold, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, is something within VR would be great. But the, the point that you do make about kind of moving around and um, the whole issue of VR sickness is an issue as well, especially with people that, uh, like me, I'm not like a gamer. And so uh, I don't know the, my way around an Xbox controller well enough to kind of feel like it's very fluid for me to move around. And mm -hmm. so my bias and preface preference is going to be to create experiences where it doesn't actually require people to be intimately familiar for how to kind of navigate these 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 worlds but yeah. i do recognize that um something like the uh, uh sleep no more would be a great experience to have so um you know palmer lucky in his talk at dice is talking about you know one of the biggest open problems in virtual reality is vr input so uh Interacting with these environments is is something that I think is a pretty huge open problem for you know creating this uh, feeling of immersion where you know if you're kind of moving around and you're not actually moving and you're doing it with your hands then there is going to be this disconnect between uh, 
what you're what you're actually physically doing with your hands and what you're experiencing in VR. And before we get to input, I wanted to just I guess get your opinion really quickly on 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 this thought that I've just had. I think, and if you, if you please indulge me in following me down the rabbit hole, I, I think that. Uh, Sleep No More seems like it could be the future of theater or a, a part of the future of, of a theater. I think, uh, and I think it runs in parallel with television and our in our in our in our media, the way we consume media. I think, you know, what we're seeing is we're going from television to telepresence. This this this, this, this we're breaking the fourth wall here, like or the third wall. I don't know how what they call it in theater. It's it's the but that's what sleep no more is doing. You're going from sitting on your butt looking at people act, you know, you're behind the fourth wall. I think it's the fourth wall. Um yeah. and next thing you know it, you're you are a part of it. It's it's I feel like that's the parallel that virtual reality and, and sleep no more are running uh together on. And you know, do you think that sleep no more could be emulated and 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 you know re reproduce and rehash in, in different other contexts contexts and different places. Oh yeah, I think to me, uh, you know, and I think other people. Um, there was some um, some people from The Verge when they were at CES. There was one of the commentators that had brought up Sleep No More. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I saw it. I saw it back in 2011, um, and it was the most sort of uh, amazing immersive experiences I've had in my life. Um, and so when I think of virtual reality, I think that is the biggest potential to kind of replicate that. Now, I, I don't I don't quite know how well uh, you'll be able to reproduce that because, you know, I was physically running around 100 rooms, five floors. You know, there's a certain element that um, I think is really, really difficult to, to get the, 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 the feeling of, of running on a warehouse um, to the point of the future of, of media. I will say that. You know, something like Sleep No More is done by a production company called Punch Drunk, and they had to raise, you know, millions of dollars to get the real estate in New York City, 100 rooms, uh, and they decked it out. The, uh, the thing that I didn't mention was that it's, it's dressed up to be like a 1920s hotel, wow. and it's immaculate. You know, they kind of have this whole mythology around the McKittrick Hotel, and you, you kind of believe that this is a real hotel, but it was, it's never been a hotel <laughs> it's just a warehouse that oh. has been – it looks like a hotel, and you, you believe that it's a hotel, and you're in the 1920s, and it's it's taking you so far out of your normal experience, and it, it just puts you in this state of wonder and awe and exploration and curiosity and play. Uh, and the thing is that I, that I wrote this whole um, article on my blog. Uh, if you just search for Sleep No More Kent Buy, it should come up, but mm. it's called the – uh, so talking about the synchronicities that, that happen, and synchronicities are uh, moments and just things that happen that are coincidental, but they have a deeper meaning. And so the internal state is somehow being reflected into what's happening in the external state in the world. And so in some ways, like we were talking before, it's very appropriate in some ways, the shadow projection where the, your shadow being projected out into the world and, you know, your own internal traumas and things that you need to integrate and become more whole in your life are being projected onto other people. And the whole idea is that you're trying to, to be more integrated and whole and the whole game of being incarnated here on this earth is to evolve and to grow as a person and as a human being. And so with something like Sleep No More, you're putting yourself in this environment where you're making all these decisions and you're, you're being faced with all these archetypal uh, images. And it's like being in a lucid dream. 
in a lot of ways. And you're, and because there's no speaking, and I think this is another point that I want to make because I think it's very key. Mm-hmm. There's no dialogue and no speaking in sleep no more in this, uh, in this experience. And so what that's saying is that it's an, an entire right brain experience. There's no left brain activity happening, uh, because there's not a lot of language. No, there's not a lot of words. Uh, and so it changes your real orientation of, of time and space and, and experiences. And to me, uh, when I'm de- designing a virtual reality experience, I'm thinking about that. I don't want to have a lot of people reading a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have a lot of like, uh, uh, you know, speaking or dialogue. Even I, I kind of want it to be this right-brained, lucid dream experience for people. Yeah. Uh, but for for the scope and scale, the, the point I was trying to make about the, the McKittrick is that's millions and millions of dollars. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. And so when you say it's the future of media, yeah, sure, if you're able to kind of be as big and successful as a production company like Punch Drunk. But in VR, the the ceiling and the, the VR ceiling, I guess, is the limit in terms of what you're able to do with uh, creating environments that are kind of replicating that. So, so I do think it's a very rich uh, potential there. So as a designer, what do you think it'll take for virtual reality to bring you as close as possible to to sleep no more to that to that lucid dream state i mean from a design perspective uh, you've already mentioned a few things like that you know like that like reading or, or or signs and stuff but but uh but what else what else can can bring us closer uh to that lucid dream per, uh state of mind so i think that this is a <laughs> so going into kind of the the real esoteric perspective here um you know, the future, and this is down the road, is to have VR experiences that are generatively uh, generated to be kind of uh, put into whatever you happen to go through in your life. Um, there are esoteric traditions and wisdom traditions, such as astrology, for example, that look at your birth time of when you were born. Uh, it will show you, you know, your natal predisposition uh, and then also transit. So over time, how that's evolving. So from a VR game design perspective, I say the future would be to be able to get somebody's birth time information and really customize a VR experience for them for whatever they happen to be going through. Now, that's sort of my my dream for five, 10 years down the road, uh, you know, to be able to really customize it to give people the archetypal experiences that are really getting into that lucid dreams. Because mm-hmm. lucid dreams, again, going back to what dreams are, and lucid, you know, dreams are bringing up a lot of those things that are in the shadow and in our psyche that we're trying to work through. Uh, and so in order to reproduce a dreamlike experience, it has to have some sort of symbolic connection to your life. Um, and so there are films out there like with Terrence Malick who are, who are kind of doing these real meditative poetic films where you're able to kind of project your own uh, feelings, your own reality onto what's happening. And they they really have a lot of really big wide open spaces. And so a lot of ways, I think, you know, if you're thinking about VR game design is to kind of leave it very open for people and they can kind of interpret it for how they want. Uh, But to really dive deep and to really get into this, you know, transformative spiritual uh, experiences, I think you'd have to kind of get some input as to who the person was, some information, and then try to take that information and and um, create VR experiences around that. Like I said, there are certain esoteric traditions that, that could do that, but there's other divinatory ones like the I Ching or the Tarot or things that are more probability-based uh, and sort of uh, 
a, a window into the ensouled universe, I guess you could say. Um, so that's 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 sort of going off into the more esoteric realms. But for me, uh, VR is the perfect medium to really explore a lot of these esoteric traditions because esoteric by its definition means that it's inward and it's hidden. It's things that you can't see. And so if you're able to, to project out things that aren't able to be seen out into a virtual reality world, then you could start to interact and engage with these metaphors and to maybe uh, like – for, for my mind, uh, be able to train your mind to be able to, to learn about symbols, to learn about archetypes, so that the more that you're familiar with gods, goddesses, uh, symbols, uh, mythology from our from you know like the, the model of Joseph Campbell and the, the theory of the, the hero of the thousand faces, mm-hmm. you know it's all one story. It's the hero's journey, and so we're all within our own hero's journey. And so how can we kind of create symbolic representations of that for people to kind of experience? And to project their own meaning onto. That's a toughie, but but I know of one game that has a couple of games, a couple of games that have uh, perhaps given me a. Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a it, it's a, it was a spiritual thing, but I I come back to playing Journey on the PlayStation Three and PSN uh, and and Flower a lot. I go back to playing those games a lot because. Um, yeah, you you've there's this there's this story happening here, that, and you and you realize that this is bigger than you. That this is and then the music combined with the with the visuals, it's just a fantastic game. And you know, in a, in a sense, it sort of sort of speaks to what you're doing. Let me ask you really quick. I know my questions are all over the place, but when when was your first light bulb moment for virtual reality? When was it that it hit you like, okay, it's here. I, I this is where I need to move forward. Well, I think that, you know, like I was saying, the like, I'd seen Sleep No More, right? Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was kind of like the, the pinnacle of an immersive experience, mm-hmm. right? And so when I see, uh, I had heard of the Kickstarter at some point, um, but, you know, I, in my own process of, of developing, um, I, I developed a, a website called natalchansits.com, which is basically taking uh, an open source uh, graphic, uh, an open source ephemeris that was done in JavaScript uh, and creating the whole way of being able to track transits, right? And so I had developed it, and I was tracking my own astrological transits and was seeing this correlation of like, wow, I was going through a lot of really intense transits when I made this app, and then when I was going through another set, according kind of predicted by the app, or, or at least sort of correlated, I, w- I did another big update. And so I, I had in my mind that there was going to be something big happening on this third and final pass. And I had this conversation with another astrologer, and uh, basically, the, what came out of that was, you know, the next step for me was to do a full 3D interactive uh, version of the astrology program uh, and to really integrate a lot of this so that I could take some of those visuals and graphics and kind of port them over to a film. So I had been kind of sitting on that for about a month or so. Uh, and then I just woke up on New Year's Day and just, you know, decided to look up like what was going on with the Kickstarter mm-hmm. and with Oculus Rift and saw that they had dev kits that were being sold and open to the public now. And it was just $300. You just buy it and you get it. And yeah. so I bought it and, you know, it showed up a week later and I sort of started my journey there. So it was kind of like this slow evolution of working on an app and coming up to these different roadblocks in terms of it. You know, I wanted to have it on my phone, but it was too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's still when I looked at Unity, it was like, oh, Unity, you could you could do it for all these platforms, including iOS and including Android and and other mobile platforms, but all these other platforms. And so 
I just thought like, hey, if I could write it once in this one language and program and have it in all these different um, distribution outlets, that'd be great. Now, it's I will say that um, that's where I got started, but I feel like I don't know enough about virtual reality as a medium to know kind of where it's going to go and where to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not this sort of grand vision that I have, this what got me in is actually going to be my first project or what I'm going to work on next even. But, you know, just doing the the uh, Global Game Jam just gave a 48-hour time period to really kind of dive in and get my first taste of what it's like to work with the medium. And I think there's going to be a little bit of other maybe pet projects that I do um, ones with, you know, having sacred geometry, geometry shapes kind of rotate around and you have the ability to kind of interact with them or, um, you know, being able to draw images in your mind and then have them be drawn in, in 3D reality. So you're kind of doing those things where you're able to do visualizations in your mind, but also have it right in front of you. And so how, how are you able to kind of hold an image in your mind? Which gets to other other technologies that I also you know supported the Kickstarter for the Open BCI, which is the brain control interface, which is basically putting electrodes on your head and then being able to read your brain waves hmm. to do different stuff with either reading your emotions or holding thoughts. Uh, there's technology out there with emotive where I saw yeah. a demo of a guy who put an emotive on his head mm-hmm. and he was like holding an, a thought in his mind. And then he was able to basically move himself forward. Yep. So I think in a lot of ways, that's that's kind of like the future of where this could be going is uh, training yourself to be able to hold mental images and hold thoughts for long enough and clear enough so that you can actually use your brain as a control interface to virtual reality. I think you're right. I think I think the controller of the future is the human brain itself. I just don't know when that will be. I, I think that virtual reality will have uh, will have its phases. I I have this. I'm right. I'm working on this article that I th- that I'll, I'm probably gonna publish soon. But I think that it's gonna come in in a couple three three phases. I think we're gonna see the the haptic era, then biometrics, and then neural. I think we're gonna hit on the the lowest hanging tree tree the long lowest hanging fruit from the tree, which is which is haptics, which is being worked on really 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 well. And then I think we're gonna hit up biometrics. I think being able to uh, incorporate human bodily functions and, 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 and the data from the body to, you know, use it uh, in the immersive world. And then finally, I think we're going to be able to really, really utilize the human brain as a, as a controller or as the, the platform itself. Maybe we'll have the video game or the immersive world projected directly onto our brains, bypassing our pupils and retinas. Who knows? But... But I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's going to be things like eye tracking. There's going to be, you know, Palmer Lucky, you know, is up on stage saying that, you know, eventually VR will be like the, like wearing glasses, which I thought was pretty amazing. Because mm-hmm. um, you start to, you know, you put on the Oculus Rift right now and it looks like you have this giant awkward thing on your face. And, yeah. you know, you think about like a, getting a, a shot of somebody's face in virtual reality and being able to actually have their actual face. You can't see their eyeballs or their face or, you know, their emotions, really. It's just kind of like this cyborg kind of creepy looking thing that, you know, you're, you know, because I was like, oh, what if you could just like project somebody's real face in virtual reality? But then I was like, but you're wearing the virtual reality mask on your face. And so it's going to be a little hard to kind of like get an actual video of of real time what what people's facial expressions are. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I do, I do think that, um, Things like oh, you know, someone asked me. I showed I showed the uh, Dacos Rift to some of my uh, kind of spiritual friends, and they were like, 
they're blown away. They were just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, cause you know, I, I don't have a lot of gamer friends. I have some at work, but you know, a lot of my friends are kind of technologically phobic or kind of skeptical of, of how technology is disconnecting us from our, our sense of, of humanity and a sense of nature and a connectedness to the, to the world. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that type of orientation, I think is being skeptical of, of the, the ways that technology can disconnect us and make us more isolated uh, but they saw the potential of how you could use virtuality as a as a way of, of teaching and of learning of and their their kind of impulse was like I just want to be able to think something in my mind and make it happen and they're like they're like <laughs> they're like when can you make that happen it's like that's probably like five or ten years down the road and then I'm looking on Kickstarter and there's a a Kickstarter for like an open brain control interface device that is like open data and open source and Arduino technology and hardware. And, you know, it was like all this software. And I was like, Oh my God, like I said five to 10 years, but maybe I should have said two or even a year because it's like already here in some ways. I, I'll but still it, put my money on five to 10 though. I, I think yeah, the money's no, not there there's yet. Just, <laughs> <laughs> there's still uh, the, the big things like with the open BCIs, you have to put like, paste on your head in order like to, to get the electrodes to yep. work and so i'm like oh that's not going to be viable for like the consumer but you know yeah I the tr- other thing the other thing is that just be able to have like uh the the clarity and mindful meditative state to be able to actually hold a, a thought mm-hmm. for long enough to happen but also to have uh, the low enough latency between actually getting that thought and having it actually happen in VR. I, I think it's going to be a big thing too. I tried one of those devices. Uh, I went to a, a conference where there was this individual, this, this young man trying, uh, demoing off his hardware. And it was a, uh, it was a piece that you put over your, your, your head. And he, what he had to do is he had to get it wet. So he had to, he, he slapped a, a wet, uh, emotive looking thing on my head. That was weird but but then he told me all right so go ahead and look at that that car there was this car in front of me and he told me focus on it and if you focus and concentrate on it you'll be able to push it forward or move it and uh it worked but it wasn't i mean i don't i, I mean it, it felt weird because i was like am, am i doing this right i it was it got to a point where i started the learning curve was was it started mastering the learning curve and I could hear like a or I could feel like a click in my head like a like oh okay I, I think I feel like I'm doing it right but it was um but it's weird because it works like somehow somehow it works and and it's only day zero which is you know which is the yeah. most awesome thing about it yeah and I think that there you know to me I you know one of the other sort of many <laughs> little side projects that I'd love to, to do at some point is like to create kind of like a training ground for uh, emotive or, you know, mm-hmm. just play around and see if virtual reality could actually uh, create an environment where you're just seeing things in your mind and you're able to actually train kind of a language because it is symbolic in some ways. Uh, it could be. And I think to me, I think it's going to be a, a holding an image in your thought is going to be more powerful perhaps than than saying the word. But I don't know. I, I don't I haven't really uh, explained it. That's just sort of my intuition that being able to think mental images uh, and be, have that translated into thought within that computer or through the brain control interface is going to be, you know, a compelling way to interact with it, with, with technology. But like I said, it's going to be, um, it's, it's still the early days and, um, Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see where that goes and what people, uh, what people find, what works. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I I do want to say one other thing though, there's, there's a heart math Institute, um, which does, uh, 
heart rate variability and in heart math, what they realized is that there's different ways that you can look at your heart rate and to be able to determine how coherent your state is. So for example, if you're in a meditative coherent state, uh, the variability between your heartbeats actually forms a pretty perfect sine wave. Uh, and when you're not in a coherent state, then you're kind of all over the place. It's very jagged. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways to do things like measure your heart rate to be able to determine what kind of like focused or meditative state you are. Uh, and certainly with um, uh, OpenBCI, you're going to be able to, to read emotions or have a signature for emotions. And so you may be able to get some type of feedback in terms of people's emotional states and start to kind of take in what their body is doing uh, and take the, that type of input and be able to to either visualize it through something like the uh, quantified self movement, which is all about, you know, taking data and measuring data about your body and what's happening to that mm -hmm. in, in your body. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining that at some point there's going to be this crossover between the quantified self movement and those people that are gathering all this data and virtual reality so that they may be able to have interactive biofeedback in real time, mm -hmm. but also to be able to look at all this data they've been collecting for, for years now and mm -hmm. to be able to, to sort through it and sift it through it in a, a, a 3D, you know, virtual immersive environment in a way that they're able to kind of gain insights about themselves, which I think would be pretty interesting as well. Let me hold you right there on that real-time biofeedback. That is that is that is fascinating, and 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 I imagine it would be really cool if it was a real-time biofeedback. Somehow you had an augmented reality piece on your head, or or I don't know, you can keep track of your real-time you know bodily functions and you know all the data and metrics that are happening in your body. I wonder if that's gonna if that if that's gonna change human psyche. Like if it, all of a sudden I have all this information about the inner works of my body, will I be making decisions differently? Will I live? Will people start living more careful lives? Perhaps I don't know. What, what would happen? Well, to me, I think the the big I think there's an app called Melon or Use Melon. Mm -hmm. I think that's the name, but it, it measures focus, and so you kind of put this thing on your head, and it and and it's able to, to kind of gather some of this, this stuff, this data, and to see how well you're able to focus. Because, you know, I, there was this conference that happened over the weekend called the Wisdom 2.0 conference that I attended virtually through live stream and was doing a lot of coverage on my Twitter account at uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, Kent by. Uh, if you want to search the archives and kind of see all this stuff from uh, the Wisdom 2 conf. But the Wisdom 2.0 conference is this m mashup of a lot of the mindfulness, the spiritual, uh, different traditions being brought into places like Google and like Medium, um, all these Fortune 500 companies that are finding that the more that people are bringing in these type of mindful practices into the workplace, the more focused and productive and innovative and uh, all these things that is coming out of that. And so I, I do see that you know, uh, mindfulness and, and spirituality, um, it has a, a crucial part because we have all these devices, uh, that are constantly grabbing at our attention, right? You know, we want to check our phone every 15 minutes. And if we don't, we get anxious or, you know, we post something on Facebook and we are like, Oh, you know, it's like a, it's like they're, they're using all the worst components of gambling of like, you know, random, of positive feedback of people liking or sending you a comment and they're kind of gamifying in a way that is exploiting us for their own sort of economic you know business models and so mm -hmm. we have all these things that are competing for our attention but it's like attention without awareness and so 
I, I do see that virtual reality will be this this opportunity to kind of give people some reprieve from all this mental stimulation from outside, yeah. and to be able to, to to cultivate mindfulness and serenity. And you know, if you're in the middle of the city and don't have access to nature, then you know, assimilating, being connected to nature, which you know, in my mind, is not going to be quite the same, yeah. but it's going to be able to fool you into kind of having the stimulation that's going to encourage you to be more relaxed and and um, reduce your stress ultimately. Here's the other side of the coin. And by the way, I am 100% on your side. I think that VR should be a medium to help us enhance ourselves. Um, but, but I also think that because technology gives zero fucks about our ethics and morals, people will use it for both uh, amazing and beautiful things and, and uh, diabolical evil shit. Like, you know, and it's not even diabolical evil shit like, like, like torture and all that stuff. But I think, and I've spoken to people who want to bring about this new way of advertising and marketing inside of virtual reality. Like, spoke to a PR guy who was talking about like, uh, you know, getting Coca-Cola to create a virtual reality polar bear environment where you're hanging out with the polar bears and, you know, subliminal messages here, subliminal messages there. <laughs> hey, you know, it's a free country. Do whatever you like. But but at the same time, there, there is this new medium. There is this new, this blank canvas to, to do amazing things with it. You know, something that you have been sort of, a couple of things that you've sort of been touching on is this spirituality and, and education. And I think that Let's go with education first. We're, you're talking about, um, you know, attention spans and bringing people to to be able to be immersed and focused. I, I think that really education is, is going to be huge, 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 huge. I was a dumbass during in high school. Like I was a complete like uh, I, I just couldn't get along in school. I couldn't. I, I hated I hated math. And it was because I it, it, it wasn't that it didn't I didn't like it. It was because I just couldn't understand it the way they were uh you know give you know shoving it down my throat i think that being able to visualize abstract ideas and numbers inside of virtual reality would be amazing for people who are you know more of visual learners i think um and that that idea that now i don't have to compete with my smartphone i don't have to compete with all these other distractions i am inside the world i am you know i, I there's no escaping unless i take off the headset but but you see what i'm saying like <laughs> yeah um, yeah, and I think that's why virtual reality is going to be so compelling for people is because they, they are going to have these experiences where they're fully immersed and kind of have these these sense of wonder and awe and play um, that a lot of times when you're in real world and you have your phone right there and it's so tempting to be able to look at it and have access to the world's information and all of your friends and social networks and all the you know, the whole world is at your fingertips, literally. Mm -hmm. um, but it's mediated through the technology and these screens that, you know, kind of put you in this zombie state. And like I said, it's like attention, but attention without awareness. So I, I do agree that, you know, education is going to be huge. And one of the things that was the most encouraging for me is to see, uh, you know, Cymatic Bruce did this whole top 10 VR experiences of 2013. Mm -hmm. And right up there on that list, I think it might have been number four or so, was Titans of Space. Uh, and that was one of the first VR experiences that I wanted to have um, yeah. when I got my Rift because uh, it was the educational experience and it was so compelling that uh, it was so it, it was so popular and so and still I hear it a lot of people say that's that's their paradigmatic like Rift experience so far and it's it's on the rails and you're just kind of floating around looking at planets and you know it's sort of, sort of the reason why I had my own my own vision of 
of doing more of a geocentric, you know, from Earth's perspective of astrology, but also astronomy of understanding the celestial mechanics and how the planets move and the celestial equator and the ecliptic and how that moves with the diurnal rotation of the Earth. You know, those are all big words that, you know, if you don't know what they mean, they kind of, they don't mean a lot. But if you're in a virtualized 3D environment, you could tell people and show people what those words mean. And mm-hmm. it, it actually encourages you to kind of read and move. And so I just had one of my friends just the other day run through the the whole um, experience of Titans of Space. And, you know, he was reading all the things. He's like, I had no idea about that. You know, and he was like really learning and engaged. And so there's a huge potential for creating educational environments. And I do think that something like the Khan Academy and the model where you have all of the lessons are up online, they're self-contained, and you can go at your your own pace and what interests you. Yeah. And I think right now our education system, you know, there's that, that famous TED Talk, but I think Sir Robert, whatever his name is, but the, the TED Talk where he's basically like we're treating everybody the same and we're mm-hmm. just like putting them through the education system like they're all equal and you go at the same pace. But human beings aren't made like that and our own inherent interests and desires are, are completely unique to us. And so to each individual and so you know figuring out what you're actually interested in being able to actually explore that and to go further and deeper and at your own pace i think um, the model where instead of going to a classroom and you are able to like just be talked at by a teacher for the whole time and then you go home and do your homework instead it's you go home you experience whatever uh segment of education you want to experience and then when you go into the classroom is the time when you get to interact and ask questions and actually um, have very specific interactions with the teachers and so i think the virtual reality is going to be very well suited for creating those types of go on your own at your own pace types of experiences do you know we we talk about like yeah education is going to be huge in virtual reality although I, I just I just haven't seen perhaps it, it's going to be a matter of just it's just a matter of time but I haven't seen the education industry anyone in the education industry come out and 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 try it out try out the rift or, or talk about the rift it's um because it, it's one of those things it just, it just feels like listen dude it goes hand in hand it, 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 and mind you we have this system that is it's factory line and we we're going into a paradigm in a century where you know, education needs to be more individualized. I think people, like yeah, like you said, we're not made that way. We're not all the same. Yeah, it's yeah. I think uh, education is going to be huge. It's just, what yeah, do you think it'll still, take, though? What's that? What do you think it'll take? What do you think it'll take for like you know the industry to realize or for people to start catching on? Is it just a matter of time, really, or? Well, you have to realize that right now the Oculus Rift is still kind of a prototype technology in the, mm-hmm. t- in, in the sense that it's in the hands of 50,000 developers. And um, I, I imagine a good portion of those are kind of enthusiasts that they are ones who experience the virtual reality experiences and then actually developing. Yeah, but I would say that there are probably a lot of people out there that have their hands on the technology that are working on stuff, but it's just not ready for prime time yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my sense. Um, and I think if you look at things like the Oculus Rift winning the best of CES um, this past year, 2014 in January, that's a that's a huge kind of boost of saying, hey, this is an important technology. You get, you're going to see more and more sort of like this is going to revolutionize everything, you know, from all entertainment to, you know, all around. So, I, again, there's the, the there's the kind of temptation to say, oh, this is going to 
make films go away and radio go away. And, you know, there's never a medium that ever goes away. Once a medium's there, it's there. Uh, so, you know, the fact that or it, it, you hear things of people, this is going to like surpass and, you know, make, make movies and, and books go away. No, those are all be there. They'll have their own strengths as a medium, but I think it will take time. It will take um, a couple of breakout hits, but it also, it'll take time in terms of like, it's a new technology, there's going to be a sense of a digital divide in the, in the fact that not everybody's going to be able to own a PC and not everybody's going to be able to own uh, this technology. But I think that's probably why they have people like John Carmack looking at how do you get this uh, technology working on an Android phone? Because, yes. you know, either if it's an embedded Android phone within the Rift or, you know, in your own personal phone to be able to run off of this, this technology, then I think that's, that's where you're going to see perhaps, you know, kind of jumping into another realm of being able to take it to the next level, but it's going to take time. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm keep, keep my, my ear to the ground to see what's out there. I'm, I'm sure people are already working on it. There's already people doing stuff with the film that, uh, people may not, uh, kind of be on their radar, but there was a project that was at Sundance this year called, uh, clouds. It was an interactive document documentary that, um, was done by a couple of people uh, from New York and the ITP program and uh, IBEAM and various sort of organizations out in New York. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I've just read their stuff online. And what they were able to do is do a whole uh, film where they were interact interviewing luminaries of digital technology, people who use technology as art, as their kind of way of expressing um, different things, right? Uh, things like Cinder and um, other other programs to be able to to write code and, and make beautiful things happen. <clears throat> they uh, they developed this uh, thing called the RGBD toolkit, which is a way to hook up a connect to an SLR camera, and they're able to do some um, calibration with the checkerboard. Mm-hmm. And what they're able to do then is is shoot with the SLR camera to get this high def, really great quality footage. And then get the connect depth information, record that into a computer, and then correlate that into a computer afterwards. So then they're able to actually take um, a shot that they took and then in post-production move the camera all around because they've created this 3D mesh of whoever they've interviewed. And that mesh has the texture from the film, from the, the, uh, the actual DV, uh, the digital video projected onto it. Uh, so they're actually able to kind of create these holographic uh, entities um, and um, export that into Blender. There's a, a plug-in, and I think potentially even put it so that you have like 3D holographic footage that you're shot and have it within the Rift. Um, well, that, that's one component that they've been able to do to have like this 3D element of add the depth information to filmmaking. But the other thing that they I think is really interesting is that they have a generative component to it. So they have thousands of clips and they've tagged them in, with metadata to be able to say this clip is connected to this clip. And somehow you're able to, to vote on like, is this interesting to you? Do you want to explore this further? If so, then it kind of automatically generates the film for you. And so each time you watch it, it starts you with a question. And then you, depending on whatever the answer to that question is, it takes you and it starts you in this journey of this graph. It's kind of like the the web or the internet and you're able to kind of explore it. So it's really like this interactive documentary. So to me, something like that is going to be in the lines of something 
in kind of the next wave of educational material where you have this interlinked set of data where you're able to just dive into it and, and have this whole immersive interactive experience with it. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask you, what is motivating you personally to be inside this, this realm, this, this, this new burgeoning industry? Well, to me, it's, you know, like <laughs> to, to take a step back and, you know, my orientation of, of astrology is how I kind of got into um, looking at, you know, developing an astrology application, but also the time that we're in is a revolutionary time. So I had this orientation in my mind of saying this time that's happening right now is a revolutionary time. Pay attention to what's happening. Um, this astrologically, it's the Uranus is squaring Pluto. Uranus is this revolutionary change agent. Um, things that are this, this visionary desire to, to kind of bring in the new ideas and that's mixed with the Pluto, which is the transformational, uh, potential to, to take whatever's not working, let that die and to have something kind of be born. That's, that's new. And the sixties was the last time that this configuration was happening. And from the time period of like 2011 to like 2016 or so is kind of the real crux. And it kind of, it spans out another five years before and after that, but really this, we're in the midst of this huge revolutionary time. And so when I'm looking at it, I'm, I was actually on the lookout for things that are like game changing. And when I saw the Oculus Rift, I was like, wow, this is really fitting into this game-changing movement that's happening right now. And again, with astrology, you're looking at a chart that's a 2D representation of a 3D reality. That's just been the, what we've been working with because that's what works, and it's a symbolic represent, representation that actually works really well. However, the whole aspect of the third dimension has been eliminated and ignored in the field of astrology because it's not very well easily accessed. And so my personal motivation is to kind of bring that back, these ancient techniques. And um, that's something that has been happening within the field of astrology. These techniques that have been lost for thousands of years are being rediscovered in the eighties and nineties and starting to really take off. Mm -hmm. Um, And just so to kind of be on the cutting edge of the technology, the cutting edge of the latest and the astrological techniques. And, and part of the things that were used back in the ancient times were how things actually looked in the sky, how bright they were, what the declination was in terms of how far it was from the ecliptic and, and all this stuff that we kind of lose because we're looking at a 2d representation of it. So my, my desire is to actually work in a medium where you don't have to just use a 2d representation but you can actually get a full 3d environment and you can actually interact with it in a way that you're able to have data visualizations that you couldn't have before and i think this is you just imagine like right now a lot of our data visualization techniques are kind of made to be optimized for a 2d screen but when you open up a third dimension what does that give you mm -hmm. what what can you start to do when you're trying to find patterns and data when you have an extra dimension that you're able to kind of really be immersed in and interact with. So to me, that's, that's super exciting. And, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of like get to the point where we get some of these ideas actually implemented and, you know, it could be a, a fairly small market of, of people that would be uh, interested in actual astrological techniques. I'm kind of working with a subgroup of a subgroup in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, but <clears throat> looking at something like Titans of space is very encouraging to me because I could see something like that and see how compelling that is. And there's so many things that I can think of that have 
kind of a deeper symbolic meaning of, of not sort of the mundane astrological or astronomical data and facts to me that's interesting but it's not as interesting as it being connected to my own personal story my own mythology that's that's unfolding over time i want to have a better sense of what that is and be able to to be able to get insights and and in a lot of ways like the quantified self movement gain more insight to who i am and where i'm going you are the first person that I know of that is uh, well-versed in the realm of astrology. And <laughs> I have questions for you because I okay. am curious and I am ignorant of many things that you speak of. What is, uh, just f fundamentally, and I hope you don't, please don't take this uh, no. to offense, but what is the, what do, what do you think is the value of astrology for humanity in the 21st century? So there's a guy named Rick Tarnas who wrote a book called Cosmos and Psyche. And what Rick Tarnas was able to do is that, you know, he wrote The Passion of the Western Mind. And The Passion of the Western Mind was the history of Western thought. And what he lays out in there is that there was a time and place back in Plato's time when the soul, when, when the, the, the universe had a soul, a world soul, it was called the Anima Mundi. And the, the earth and you know, uh, we have our own personal soul, but, but basically the anima mundi is the idea that there's a conscious universe that we can interact with it, that there's all these things that are enchanted. It's an enchanted universe where there's meaning that's embedded. And when you see omens in nature, they're actually speaking and telling you something. So, you know, the thing that happens with, with cosmos and psyche, the big points is that we have been disconnected from nature and the, the mythology of our times is that everything is progressing and getting better, but at the same time, we have a society that's falling apart. And why is that, right? Why? And so things like astrology are going back to a time and place where there, there is a connection to us and to the outer world, that there's a relationship there. And, you know, over half of the world's population lives in cities and suffers from light pollution, and so we can't see the night sky. So what's it mean that we can't see our own night sky? It makes us feel like we are um, just, it's all about our ego. And so in some ways, you know, it's a metaphor for it all becomes about us rather than how we fit into the, the greater cosmos. Mm -hmm. So that's more of a philosophical kind of orientation. But at a more practical level, um, astrology about, is a, to me is about cycles. It's about knowing what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your predispositions predispositions are in your life so that you can kind of know what you're here to do, what your gifts are, because we all come here on this planet and we're trying to live into our gifts and to really live up to our potential and feel like what our work is, is aligned with who we are and what we want to be in this world. Mm -hmm. And so astrology gives us a map. It mm -hmm. tells us like what our predispositions, what are, you know, predispositions are and what works well for us but also it tells us how that evolves over time yeah. and so you can look at the chart you can read it and say this is sort of your natal chart but this is what you happen to be going through right now mm -hmm. and so the goal of incorporating astrology with virtual reality is to uh, motivate people, help people uh, figure themselves out and, and go out and look at the night sky and appreciate it? Is, is that what, the what is the ultimate goal eventually? So there's a, 
there's a documentary called The City Dark, and it goes through and documents the light pollution that we see in the cities. We can't really actually see the night sky when you go out. A lot of times you just see a, a small fraction unless you're out in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to be able to put on virtual reality and be able to look up and see the night sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I know that's going to come either from the astronomy perspective or astrological perspective. You know, I'm, I have more of an astrological orientation, but people who are from the more astronomy orientation, they sort of have the same desires and they will want to know like what the name of each star and sort of facts and data about each one. And I'm really interested in, the symbolic representations of, of those stars, but there's different techniques that I'm really getting interested in, in astrology that has to do with timing techniques and they're called time Lord techniques. And, um, the idea is that our lives unfold in certain patterns. And so, um, there may be peak times in your period, in your, in your career that may be helpful to know when is going to be a good time for you, uh, in your life or if things are really difficult, you may want to know like, Hey, is this me or is there something else that's going on that, that I'm supposed to be learning right now? So people come to astrology, they turn to astrology oftentimes because they're going through some crisis and they're trying to get some sort of story, some sort of meaning, some sort of deeper purpose and, and orientation so that gives some guidance as to what direction they should be going in. And, you know, I, I'm not expecting for, for people to actually kind of buy into that. Um, to me, there's a, you know, Rick Tarnas's book, the cosmos and psyche, lays it out from a cultural perspective saying during these time periods, there tends to be a certain archetypal flavor that happens uh, when, when these, when these different planets come into different alignments that happen that you can see over time, Uranus Pluto is probably the most distinct one where there's revolutionary times, revolutionary things happening. You see things right now. If you want to just talk about what's happening right now in the world, you have things like, the government who's surveilling and seeing all this, they want to have more and more control. And then you have people like Edward Snowden who are, are just revolting and saying, here, here's all this information about how the NSA is, is sort of violating the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Or you have revolutionary times where, you know, WikiLeaks are, are, are distributing all this information out to people about giving them information about what's what's been happening in various governments and that in some ways spurs the Arab, Arab Spring and all this revolutionary change that's happening in the, in the Mideast. Mm-hmm. So just sort of getting an orientation of like knowing where you're at in, in, in time and space and how that's evolving, I think, to me anyway, uh, is really interesting and compelling. And it's, it's also something that, that people are looking for, something that's uh, giving them some sort of sense that we live in an an enchanted universe and not just one that is meaningless and that, you know, there's, there's no meaning or purpose of, as to why we're here. That is, that is an interesting and fascinating point of view. I've, you're, again, you are a, uh, I thought I was coming out of left field with, with my ideas, but you, sir, you, sir, are, <laughs> uh, you are, you are not, you are uh, changing the, the playing field here. Um, I, I hmm. I, I I am trying to figure out where to take this uh, because I I have so many questions to ask you. All right, let me. Well, let I, have, me, I let, have one thing. I yeah. have one thing that I wanted to say about audio because mm-hmm. uh, this is another thing that I think that we haven't discussed yet. Three D audio, right? Yeah. yeah. So audio binaural audio. So there's something called holosync and something called hemisync, which sure. is if people aren't familiar with binaural beats, the idea is that. Our, our brain waves are 
are kind of going at a frequency so low that we can't actually hear it on a scale of like four to 20 hertz or so. But there's things, tricks that you can do to music where if you're putting something at 100 hertz in one ear and 108 hertz in the other ear, your mind actually does the math and can actually hear that phantom eight hertz that isn't really there, but your mind kind of fills the gaps and hears it. Mm -hmm. And so this technology is called binaural beats, which is trying to entrain your brain into different states of either focus, relaxation, um, and awareness. Um, so there's, to me, using the binaural beat aspect of audio is going to be huge, but the, the, the other big thing I think is the, the 3d positional audio. And there was something, a really exciting demo, that the, these people that call themselves VR space SDIR uh, did a demo in Unity where they were actually able to do 3D positional audio. I'm not quite sure if it's head tracked, but you know whether or not, in other words, it changes when you actually move your head. Hmm. But um, they were at least able to create this environment where you could place the 3D audio object all around in a room, move it around, and actually have it sound like that that sound was coming from that position. So to me, the, uh, the, the binaural audio and also the, the positional audio, I really hope that, you know, either unity or Oculus rip, they come up with a baked in solution to, for, for people to be able to do that, because I think it's, it's going to be absolutely critical and huge. Yeah, it definitely is. I think audio is one of those things that we take for granted and is extremely, extremely important. It's, uh, it's one of those things like the devils are in, is in the details with, with these things. And I tried a 3D audio um, demo over at the Silicon Valley Virtual Reality Meetup, and I was I was in the Rift, and uh, I had the, these headphones on, and they had this spinning thing going around me, and I could hear it going pa- behind me, in front of me, I, I and I, it it almost felt like my brain felt its presence, and yeah. it that that is definitely a, 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 a something that needs to be incorporated sometime in the future. I think that. By the time the haptic era uh, is done and we're moving into the biometric age, I think we'll be audio. The audio and the individual parts of virtual reality, I think, will be you know, get nailed down to a, a comfortable level for most people. But but it definitely is a, a, an investment worth taking a part of. I think that audio is not uh, getting the limelight that it deserves for sure. For sure. Hmm. But is it a factor of having money to put this together, or is it, or is it a technical? Because I, I mean, is what is the, you know, what it, what could it be? I mean, well, I, you know, I think there's the the issue of you know having the head tracking in there, or you know, apparently these. And I think the the one that I mentioned, the VR SDIR, is the same one that um, that went to the Silicon Valley uh, meetup there. Um, I don't know enough about how they actually implemented it to know, but apparently they found some algorithms to do. So this is, sounds like something that people are actively researching and studying, and there's techniques to do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't imagine that they in, invented a new technique, or perhaps they did. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was a plug-in to Unity, and so uh, these guys kind of disappeared off of the face of the planet. I haven't heard any updates from them and all the emails I've sent to them have gone unanswered. So they either got bought up or they're just, you know, in stealth mode, very stealthy mode. So yeah. I'd be really curious to see what, what came of that. Um, but also to see if there's any other, what, what comes down the road, because that, that to me is a pretty big open thing. I, I personally love to do that. Like, like I said, you know, with things, uh, moving around your head, um, 
and orbiting in a way is, is pretty much what I'm doing, and I'd love to play around with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, Do you think meditative states can be uh, enhanced or 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 augmented with virtual reality, or do you think a, the meditative state is something that should be completely disconnected from technology? No, so I think it's an inter- interesting question because you know when you're looking at a screen. And it's it's actually blinking at a certain rate that you can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the virtual reality is going to be the same type of thing. It's going to be blinking. Um, so and I think in some ways it's going to be like entrancing you into a meditative, into a, a, an altered state. Um, whether or not that's I, – I haven't actually sort of done a full meditation to know. Often you're closing your eyes in meditation because you're – it actually is a lot easier to – really get deep into a meditation but there's also the, the thing of a guided meditation and so what i sort of see as mm-hmm. a frontier is to take a lot of these guided meditations and to actually really vividly show people the meditation um, with the goal of them being able to do that in their mind on their own with their own sort of flavor yeah. and and imagination with outside of virtual reality so in some ways i see it as a training wheels because um you know, because of the fact that the screen is uh, blinking and, and I don't know what the effect of what that is actually doing to your brain and, you know, your mind, because it is actually very stimulating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I do think that there's a lot of principles of mindfulness and breathing and that can be applied. Um, and I read a really interesting article in terms of, you know, priming and how you're you're kind of getting people prepared for a virtual reality experience. Um that a lot of what you tell people getting ready for it can impact what people experience. But the other thing that's really been huge that I hear all the time that's an overlap is presence. Mm-hmm. And being in the moment is what the meditators and the mindful traditions are trying to do. And the sense of presence of what virtual reality is trying to create has a lot of overlap there. And a sense of presence can't in my mind, can't just be thrown at you and um, implemented via technology. There has to be a sense of an inner calmness and an awareness and, and breathing. And so in my mind, the sense of achieving this sense of VR presence is not going to be able to be achieved, you know, might be able to be achieved aside from other mindful techniques. But my hunch and my sense is that there's going to be some overlap for there's going to be some things that the person can do on their own to be able to, to actually get into these um, set states of being present within VR. Hmm. Do you think it, do you think this is going to be, uh, I mean, if, if it ever becomes a thing, do you think it'll be a, a piece of software that people will enjoy in the privacy of their homes or will they have to bring their smartphone VR slash Android Oculus Rift to the yoga studio and do it together <laughs> and with everybody? Well, you know, so one of the thoughts that I was having um, is that, you know, there's things like the Rift Max Theater where people all get together and they're, you know, watching a theater at the same time. And, yeah, I was there. Uh, I was in one of them. It was hilarious. So there's a sense of, you know, shared experiences that, you know, you, you will often go and meditate with um, different people. So in my mind, I think definitely virtual reality will have a place in terms of creating virtual environments where you can go meditate, you know, maybe even places that you could never actually physically locate. Like if you were hovering right in front of a waterfall or something, some places that you would never actually be able to go um, and, and being able to actually put on the rift. And uh, I think the, the one design firm that's on the cutting edge of this is the, 
uh, Una Design um, Lunar Droid um, game, but the, especially the they did the Waking Man too, but I, I didn't find that as to be very kind of meditative, calming. You're kind of sitting in a meditative state, but there wasn't a lot in the actual environment of, of Waking Man that actually made me feel like you know more calmed or relaxed. But in something like Eden River, where you're just like floating down mm-hmm. the river, that is something where you're it does feel like you're you're calming and you're t- being taken to another place. So uh, to me, I think that. Um, being at home and being able to go to places that you may not be able to go to go to sacred temples in Bali or to go to different places and to meditate in these places with other people, perhaps to kind of have a sitting meditation, because one of the things with meditation is that, um, you know, they say there's the Dharma, which is the teaching. There's the actual practice of meditation, but then there's the community. And so a lot of people are, are searching for spiritual community and, people to practice with and to people to learn from. And so I do see a, a, a future where you may be able to have access to a, a spiritual teacher that you may not have access to before, where you're able to kind of practice with other people and be physically located in your own home, but be able to go to this virtual meditative environments where it is very relaxing, very epic, and kind of puts you, induces you into meditative states, but also has access to teachers, I think would be a huge component. Let me ask you, do you think the teacher can be, with with artificial intelligence and the exponential growth of computer processors in the future, do you think teachers, these meditative teachers or people that you need to ask, you know, your, your, these fundamental questions about who you are and what, what the fuck am I doing here? And all this, <laughs> do you think these, 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 these questions, um, can be stored in a catalog or an archive somewhere in the internet? And, you know, this artificial intelligence will act like a, you know, like you'll have a conversation like a Watson, you know, I, the IBM Watson, and I'll go inside VR and I'll have this, spiritual algorithm talk to me about you know or, or answer the questions that i have or am i just crazy what do you think well i did i did just see the uh the movie her which is all about you oh know, i haven't seen it that one yet. yeah have you seen that not yet, yet not yet but i okay. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> well you know it's all about you know artificial intelligence that can pass the turing test and and have a, a natural evolutionary component where it's able to grow and learn over time and and develop in its own unique way so you know there's a there's a portion where they they uh they actually uploaded uh, alan watts's consciousness so they took all of alan watts's Ugh. text and you know kind of put it all in so <clears throat> i do see something like that in the future and that's something that i sort of have my own personal dream of one day being able to have my own little ai robot to be able to fine-tune upload specific text into for them to be able to parse through and to interact and dialogue and and and, you know, I think that that is going to be possible in the future. Um, to me, I think that's that's pretty far out. You know, Ray Kurzweil and his whole, like, you know, he puts it probably like 2028 or something mm-hmm. like that, where artificial intelligence is going to be indistinguishable from, you know, interacting with humans. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things that I'll throw out there that um, coming from my kind of esoteric astrology perspective uh, and AI is that, um, you know, you have astrology charts, you have birth times. And so you could have potentially gameplay interaction where you're giving characters uh, within an environment a, a certain amount of different archaeolog- or, uh, astrological archetypes that could start to engage in different ways. Uh, again, this is me kind of thinking out five to ten <laughs> years down the road, but in terms of gameplay elements and, and how do you make that a little bit more real, mm-hmm. um, 
what what does it look like and, and can you kind of uh play that out a little bit but uh yeah i think the whole the whole having super you know th- there's this idea of uh this accelerating technology is going to um make it possible for us to to learn at exponential rates or to do super accelerated learning and yeah. you know i don't i don't know I, I have a sense that our our own neurons and how they connected and there's going to be the bottleneck in that that whole super learning uh, process, but I do I do see that it's um, that's sort of the utopian version of, of of having technology be able to to really make us super powered human beings. Or we are able to develop a pill that gives us the neuroplasticity of five year olds, because I think that you know the sick what the the kids that are eight years old, nine years old, and they're going to start using virtual reality, their brains are going to be re- start getting rewired. I, I think and they'll be and they'll be just fine. It's just like uh, my little cousin, like I can I can throw him in the rift for like he's eleven years old and he goes in to play Half Life Two or whatever and he's in there, Minecraft, he's in there and he's Neo. He can spin and three sixty jump and do whatever he wants. I go in there ten minutes and I'm like oh you know, like it's 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 you get the nausea, the sim sickness the simulation sickness. You know I and so in that regard I think that it'd be it'd be quite possible to perhaps have virtual reality rewire the brain but here's a question that i need to ask you that that it's been sort of on my mind since we since the middle of this podcast you are a person that is trying to connect people to themselves through astrology but also back to, to nature i think you mentioned something how we have become disconnected from nature and yet here you are embracing technology and <laughs> and, the, and the world that we're about to face right head you know we're we're on a collision course to a to a tech we are in a collision course with a technological world and you've embraced it how how do you think technology how do you think what what will it take for virtual reality or technology itself to to bring us closer to nature what are your thoughts on that well that's a that's a tricky question because you know i think a lot of thought ways it's cultural um in a sense where a lot of a lot of times people don't actually have access to physical nature to go out into but um i think that you look at something like eden river and it's just you going down a river and you're kind of surrounded by nature you know i'd imagine perhaps at some point maybe that would inspire people to unplug and and go out into actual physical nature mm-hmm. i don't know maybe i think that the, to me, the we are disconnected from nature in the sense that a lot of our technology that we're producing is toxic. It's not in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so there's something where you look at something like permaculture design or principles of, of how to be in harmony with nature. Can you explain uh, what permaculture is, please? Sorry. Yeah, sure. Per, so permaculture is just ways of from cradle to grave that – you're doing things that are sustainable, okay. basically. That, that there's all sorts of different principles of permaculture, but one of them is that there's no waste, right? Okay. So that, uh, like for example, we have toilets, and we're we're taking we're we're so there's such a taboo with kind of reusing our our waste because it's actually very great fertilizer mm-hmm. for the earth, but yet we sort of just conveniently think we it's just much easier just to flush it down the toilet and it's you know polluting in some ways and so mm-hmm. there are things like permaculture it's a, a cultural change to be able to actually use composting toilets to be able to take that waste and be able to enrich and enliven the soil so just looking at 
the cycles of nature and looking at these different types of permaculture principles, I think in my mind are going to be also pretty huge uh, in terms of educational, um, being able to just show people what's actually happening. And so taking documentaries in a way where documentaries a lot of times are trying to shine a light on the shadows of our culture and to have us pay attention to where things are you know, either unjust or not fully integrated and you know something like virtual reality could be a, a very powerful medium to for different activists to be able to use to be able to create immersive experiences to try to um, have a deeper story uh, to either change our behaviors like whether it's to you know recycle or to you know start composting or whatever it may be but to try to 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 live our collective lives in a way that is more in harmony with nature I think the thing that you mentioned earlier, how our technology is not in sync with nature, I think that you, you, for the most part, you're 100% correct, except that I, a virtual reality, I think, I think could come, could come in sync with nature. I think, I think virtual reality could be the first, you know, or one of the most greenest technologies out there, because on the one hand, here we could start, you know, well, there's three things that I that immediately come to mind. Uh, one is virtual reality being this empathy sharing machine. I want to I want you to see the world through the eyes of a of a rhino getting poached, or a baby elephant getting you know getting poached as well. I mean, these sorts of things I think people need to see the reality of. And then at the same time, I also would love to be able to explore Mount Everest because Mount Everest is too crowded and there's poop everywhere and you know and and it's it's ridiculous. I you know I I don't everybody wants to go uh wants to climb Mount Everest. It's not even a thing anymore. And so for that matter, I think that it'd be really cool because then here you are, you're saving the environment. But even if you give someone an experience like Eden River and they don't go out into you know they're not inspired to go out into the environment into nature because they realize eh, mother nature wants to kill me anyways with spiders and crocodiles and all that bullshit like why do i need to go so in that sense you're removing someone from having to use you know fossil fuels or energy of any kind uh and polluting to get themselves to nature so so and number three the last thing that i was thinking about in, in terms of virtual reality coming going hand in hand with nature was something that i just forgot but what are your thoughts on the last two? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, I think the, the thing that comes to mind is actually not, not related to nature, but it actually has to do more with, with people and where virtuality could be going in a lot of ways. I just went to this whole virtual, this conference virtually. It was called, you know, virtually in the sense of just watching a live stream, but Wisdom 2.0 conference, right? And looking at what the, to me, the most cutting edge thing that's happening in the country right now is what Tony Shea is doing with Zappos and the downtown project. And so if we take a step back and kind of maybe recontextualize this in terms of what's happening in a physical location to be able to kind of think about how that could be applied to virtual reality worlds. Mm -hmm. So Tony Shea created Zappos, right? Zappos is, um, they sell, they sell shoes on and clothing online, but Tony Shea, he, he always says that his number one thing is number one, community or company culture, number two, customer service, and then number three, that's all going into um, the clothing, right? But the number one thing that he wants to do is create a culture. Well, the next thing that they're doing is community. So developing and fostering community. 
so he bought this huge and massive city hall in Las Vegas, and he's creating like this incubator with all these different tech startups, all this art and education, and he's really turning return on investment on its head, right? And so typically we have an entire world that's run by money. And if you want to look at what's happening with nature, why things are happening, look at what Charles Eisenstein, the author of Sacred Economics, has to say about, you know, if you ask why enough times, it usually comes back to money. Yep. So why are we destroying nature? Money, right? Mm. There's an economic benefit, and we're not in relation to it because our money system's not tied into anything that's sort of tied into nature. It's sort of this theoretical construct that artificially grows over time, which is not in harmony with nature. Mm -hmm. But debt, debt-based debt currencies kind of create this whole environment where it can have this effect of destroying community mm -hmm. because you start to only have exchanges with other people if there's money being exchanged. And so community is about exchanging your gifts. So living into the, your, your highest potential as a human being and, and being able to share with other people and people getting that and having this desire to want to share back. And so you have this gift economy. And so Tony Shea with the downtown project, I think is starting to create this environment where he's taking the best aspects of like a South by Southwest of a burning man of a Ted talk or the Ted conference. And he's trying to make that happen every day in downtown Las Vegas, which is not the strip, but is actually kind of a separate part mm -hmm. in the city. And so when I see that, I see like, wow, that is amazing. Somebody who is, who is trying to actually really foster community. And he doesn't look at it in terms of ROI or return on investment, which is back to money. But he's looking at it in two, two different factors. He's looking at return on collisions and return on luck. So collisions have to do with people that you're serendipitously running into. And if they have a culture of open and sharing, then you can start to, to learn from them and grow. Return on luck is just serendipitous happenings that are happening in terms of uh, getting different, uh, this feeling of, of being in a magical place where you just sort of magically run into people and, you know, you get lucky, you know, so, uh, but you do that by creating an environment where you have the culture where that can actually happen. And so you, you kind of feel that when you go to something like Burning Man or a music festival where you kind of have those type of experiences. So he's trying to create that every day within a city, right? So to me, that is a happening in physical space. But if people don't, if they're out in the country, they can't have that. I think people can start to create these type of Burning Man gift economies within virtual reality start to vision what the new world looks like and then take those principles and then port them back into reality. So to me, it sort of is a, a sideways way of kind of answering that question, but, but kind of getting at some of these deeper principles of, of how you could use the medium to really prototype and vision the new world and actually have people interacting in these new worlds and then see what works and then bring it back into your physical communities. Follow me down the rabbit hole for a sec. So here's the thing that I that I think about in, in terms of, in, in line with what you're saying. I think that we could save humanity from humanity from from itself from 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 self-inflicted climate change if we are able to automate all the jobs or as many as possible and migrate the existing jobs that we have. Um, Mind you, it should be a voluntary thing. Everybody should have a choice. But we should migrate jobs, as many jobs as possible, to virtual reality. A virtual reality economy run by a cryptocurrency where it's a decentralized model. That, and and here's, the th here's, a, here's the thing about the current system. The current monetary system, I, I think there's this underlying 
uh, notion that natural resources and raw materials are infinite. That 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 wood and water and minerals are going to be forever, and yet we're running out of helium, right? And so I and so if we adopt an economy inside of virtual reality, inside the metaverse. Inside of the inside the metaverse, I can have as many yachts, as many Titanics, as many houses I would you know would as I would want, and and it and it's all ones and zeros. So there's no raw materials, there's no harm to the earth being done, and if the simulation is good enough, it, it, oh, and hopefully it will be in five ten years. If the simulation is good enough, you know why does it matter if it's not in the physical world? And then of course the currency has to come out and translate back to the physical world where you can actually buy stuff and eat food with it. But <laughs> but it'd be amazing if we could just because here's the thing: why do I why do you need me my physical body at school where all I'm using is just my brain? Why do you need me at work where all I'm doing is working on spreadsheets? You know, why, why do I have to get in my car, ruin the environment, you know, uh, be miserable with, with a shitty commute? I mean, it's ridiculous and it's inefficient. And so, yeah, I think that regardless of whether I, I think that this that this should happen or not, I think it will happen. I think there will be a metaverse secondary economy happening inside of VR. And I really, really hope that it's you know it's a decentralized currency that is used inside of it to to because here's the thing and you know i know i'm getting ranty but civilization has is is standing on the heads and shoulders of trade the reason why we idolize the silk road so much was because we were able to exchange ideas and innovation at the at the pace of the horse and then we started you know exchanging through the colombian exchange we were exchanging fruits and vegetables and slaves between this africa europe and you know the americas and and, and then we started trading at the, at the at the speed of the steamboat followed by the rail car followed by the the, the air plane followed by the internet and now you know and so now we're exchanging ideas and innovations at the speed of light more or less and so i i am extremely excited about the amount of exciting things and new ideas that will pop out of this new economy that will happen um yeah i've been writing a lot about this thing and so about this stuff so it's 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 something that i keep in my mind very close but it could save the environment it, i think it could what do you think well, I, I, my, uh, my tendency these days uh, is to be a lot more uh, small, agile, minimum bioproduct, mm -hmm. lean, and, and to do something that is proof of concept that is uh, bite-sized and can work. Because the problem you start to get into when you ever start to talk about massive global socioeconomic uh, dynamics is that there's so many things that are beyond our control, so many... Um, so many hypotheticals and theoreticals that it, it starts to, to kind of turn into this, you know, kind of intellectual masturbation in a way because it's kind of disconnected, <laughs> dis disconnected from realities, I guess, you know, because we can, we can sort of vision and talk about all the stuff that we want, but until there's sort of a, a clear pathway to get to, to, to A to Z, then it, you know, to me, it's, it, it starts to be too disconnected and starts to get so complex. I think that's the thing that's, um, you know, you, you, you look at complexity theory and, you know, how do you control a, a massively complex environment where you don't really know how the inputs are going to actually change the overall dynamics. I, it's kind of the, the situation that and, you're dealing with. So, and the answer I, is you don't. The, the, it controls itself. I mean, that's, right, that's the right. answer. 
you do input and then you sort of wait and then you know sort of like uh, being in the uh, shower and you turn up the heat and then it's like you know there's a delay of five or 20 minutes and so <laughs> how do you get to the right temperature if you you can't so the feedback loop is too long mm-hmm. in other words you can't really actually have any insightful turning of the knobs and, and see how it changes and so it's a big mystery to everybody and it's it's people have all their math formulas and, and theories, but uh, when it comes down to it, it's a little bit too complex for us to really get our head around. So my mind tends to go to like, what are the things that we can do to be able to uh, use this virtual reality environment to be able to foster community, foster connection, foster a collaboration, innovation, to be able to, to give people experiences that give them a vision of the new world that um, is, is, has some takeaways that either changes them um, you know, there's films like, you know, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth that have really visceral impact on people. But uh, maybe there's there's other ways that we could use the virtual reality to to look at small things that we can do every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the key thing. The, the key thing from like meditative practice and um all that is it's a practice that you do you do for five minutes a day it's not something that you have to go out and do this whole huge impossible effort once it's something you do very small and incrementally every day and so to me the way that you change the the outside world is to go inward and change the things that you can change within yourself but then things that you're that are in your control that you can change in your environment and around you and then sort of work from there so um i'm sort of uh, playing around with the medium with my own little pet projects and you know i i get conflicted internally like you said this whole like sense of being disconnected from people and in in nature and you know going too far into technology can be escapist you know we can be running away from what our our bodies are actually wanting and i think the movie her is a good is a really great way of kind of playing that out in a in a movie narrative format of like what are the limits of people who are trying to escape from their lives and in going to technology what does that what does that imply and what does that mean yeah um, i was gonna ask you do you think is that is that a i mean is it a, is it a matter of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that that people want yeah. to escape isn't it sort of an, an inherent human you know part of our psyche to want to live outside of ourselves or be something else or be somewhere else i I mean i I, again i'm not i'm just uh sort of you know uh how do you say uh embracing that idea you know what if someone wants to be an escapist and just you know what would you how would you react to that like if you created a a, what if you create an, uh, an an environment or an experience and and people get addicted to it how 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 would you react to that how how do you anticipate that I, I look to what happened with the whole Flappy Bird phenomena because there oh. you have a developer who created this enormously successful by all traditional standards game where people get really hooked into kind of doing it all over, over again. And he, I think he was really conflicted in terms of how people were kind of spending hours and hours and hours of, his, of their lives uh, on this game. Um, and, you know, he, he probably felt like that, well, he's also getting a lot of death threats and grief for it being really difficult. But, you know, aside from that sort of thing, it, 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 he had internal conflicts in, in terms of uh, how people were using it. At least that's what he was saying publicly, yeah. you know, commenting people, you shouldn't be playing the game, go go to bed or stop playing it. So uh, I think it's, that is a risk. Um, but, you know, people also have, a, I'm, not, I'm I personally wouldn't just sort of take it out and because um, again, I think the technology in some ways neutral and agnostic. It's 
um, how people are using it, it's really up to their choice and they, they, they should be free to make that choice. And, you know, a lot of what the Wisdom 2.0 conference was talking about is, you know, how do you engage with technology in a mindful and intentional way? Um, a lot of times we get set up in these addictive loops where we're needing to check it all the time just to see if people are saying that basically I accept who you are and I think you're great essentially is what it kind of comes down to when people, you know, and so it's promoting this culture of narcissism and self-esteem and um, it's uh, comparing, it makes us compare ourselves to other people is mm -hmm. what a lot of the, what they were saying at the conference. And so how can we create a technology that really, uh, encourages people to to feel a part of a greater humanity. Drugs. Uh, <laughs> drugs, but 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 with community connecting to other people, having social interactions, I think that is going to be a pretty huge part. And uh, I don't know, I, I, the the guy who, um, who started Second Life is now doing something called High Fidelity, and I think that uh, I have a sort of an eye on that in terms of what's going to come out of that. But mm -hmm. I think they're trying to, in some ways take it to the next level of how you can have these digital uh, avatars of yourself and how can you interact with other people in these, these virtual worlds and, and kind of take it at a, the next level of, of actually feeling like you're face to face talking to other people. So, so you hypothetically can't buy, let's say you're making $50,000 a day and people are sending you emails and death threats. What is this? I can't get out. What did you do? I mean, would you, or would you not pull the, pull the plug like the flappy bird guy? I would. I. I don't think I would. But you know, I don't. I'm not in his position. True. I, so I think that's it. That's the. That's the. The trick of a, a VR designer uh, or a game designer in general is like, um, what is your intention for what type of experience that you want people to have? Do you want them to have a sense of wonder and play and awe? Do you mm -hmm. want them to really uh, explore? Do you want them to learn and grow? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the one the VR experiences that I would want to learn are the ones that I would want to have for myself, which are create an environment to really focus and to be able to really uh, learn things over time, to really immerse myself uh, in a way that I can start to use the virtual environment to help myself remember things or to understand things that were abstracted to a 2D level that I couldn't really fully grok without being immersed in a 3D environment. So, you know, I think it, it all comes back to the intention of what you want to do for yourself and what you want to do for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, no, that's a very, you know, it's it's a very, that's a very good point of it. Yeah, and having your, yeah, your priorities, what it, what are you, what are you prioritizing here? And I, and I believe you are not a uh, particularly uh, fond of prioritizing money too much over, over, over the other things. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. It, just because, you know, I've thought about like, oh, if I create this thing, would I sell it? And oh, how do you, how can I think about other ways to generate income from it that doesn't have to require people to, to get it out there? You know, I come a lot from open source background. So I've worked in the world of Drupal uh, for eight years, uh, which is a content management system that's open source. You know, I've, I've done stuff with Creative Commons, which is a way to, to take content that's out there and to attribute it, but to be able to have access to lots of music and photos and all sorts of images and, and video. Um, but also in, in, at my current job at Puppet Labs, they have a lot of different um, open source component as well. 
Uh, and so having that open source ethos is a lot about um, allowing people to contribute to something that is larger than themselves. And so how can you create a virtual reality environment that allows people to really participate as if they were in an open source community for them to take their cognitive surplus that they have at the end of each of their day and to be able to point it towards something that is, you know, analogous to uh, writing an encyclopedia like Wikipedia or to build a, a virtual world that is going to enrich people. And so I think of ways of, of how can I create a platform that's in virtual reality so that it could enable other people around the world to be able to, to plug into an audience that they may be able to come in and to be a teacher and to, to share their wisdom in an environment that, uh, for me, an astrological context would be a 3D immersive, you know, 3D a, 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 an environment of planets flying around and for them to be able to quickly load in a, a certain number of inputs, but then to for them to be able to have control to be able to, to really teach. Um, so I do see that there is a future where you could have virtual reality programs that are out there. Um, something like WhatsApp is something that it's a good example of they give it away for free for the year and then it's a dollar a year, but there's like millions and millions of people using it. And so how can you get something out there in the hands of people and be using it and create a platform to be able to, to sell learning modules or other things that um, doesn't have to necessarily be at the time that people get the program, but they're able to get real value out of it and you can sort of plug in other, other things later. Yeah, monetizing in in virtual reality is going to be so is going to be a very interesting, and it's going to be a subject that is going to be in the minds of many people as as uh, the Rift launch starts approaching. Um, whenever that is, Mr. Bai, it has been a pleasure. Uh, it has been an, an esoteric and awesome conversation so far. I have to cook uh, dinner for my girlfriend, so we're gonna have to uh, <laughs> do a, a, a quick uh, or call it early. Uh, can, how can people stay in touch with you? How can people follow what you're doing? How can people support what you're up to? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Kent Bai, K-E-N-T-B-Y-E. Uh, cool. If you want to drop me an email, I'm Kent at KentBai.com, K-E-N-T at K-E-N-T-B-Y-E.com. Uh, so drop me a line. Uh, I'd love to hear from people. Um, and I'm sort of throwing a lot of big ideas out there. And uh, if you're interested in helping make any of this happen, let me know. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear from people. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got a a Twitter list of Oculus Rift people. So if you check that out on my Twitter, I've been trying to track people. And I'm on Reddit as well as Kent Bai. I've been, that's a great community for uh, kind of tracking what's what's happening, what's developing. So yeah, drop a line, get in touch. For sure. Well, uh, once again, uh, the wonderful and esoteric and eclectic Kent Bai, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Chris.